Welcome to Force Points to the Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Erica Pierce to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Always covered in 15 minutes or less. Now, let's get to the point. Hi, and welcome back to To The Point Cybersecurity. I'm your host, Erica Pierce, joined along with Eric Trexler. Hi, Eric. Hi, Erica. How you doing this week? I'm great. The sun is finally out. Finally, finally. On the East Coast. <laughs> yes, on the East Coast. I heard it actually hasn't been out on the West Coast either, so we're all looking for it. But um, this week, this is episode 25, and uh, wow, so I guess we're hitting our first quarter uh, in, in our episodes. Um, and we are excited. We have a great guest today. We have Suzanne Spaulding, who was the former undersecretary at DHS responsible for cybersecurity and critical infrastructure. So uh, definitely had a very large job there and now is a senior advisor for Homeland Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Hi, Suzanne, and thank you so much for joining us this week. Absolutely, Erica. Happy to be on. Well, we're excited because, you know, we've had quite a range of guests, both um, government, um, industry, um, academia. But, you know, you really are just a few years removed from your role at, at DHS. And, and given, you know, just all of your responsibility, I can imagine that you have such a great perspective in terms of um, challenges, in terms of um, what government's doing well, what it could be doing better. And today we'd really like to focus um, just for the first start of the podcast on, on, on risk management and just start to start off by getting your thoughts on how government approaches um, risk management in terms of its cybersecurity strategy. I know this is an area that you have talked about um, quite a bit in terms of your your expertise. Yeah, thank you. I I guess I would approach it from two uh, slightly different perspectives. One is the work that DHS and my old organization uh, does for uh, helping the civilian.gov and the what we loosely call the dot-com, but every, all the non-governmental parts, private sector, academia, et cetera, um, with respect to helping them understand how to do cybersecurity risk management. And then what the departments and agencies and, and you know, sort of folks at OAB, et cetera, and how they approach cybersecurity for the federal government. Um, and I would say that I think the government has traditionally taken an approach to cyber risk management that's similar to what I so often see in the private sector, and that is an IT-focused approach, uh, meaning that it's really really focused heavily on vulnerabilities, identifying and addressing vulnerabilities as, as, a primary, as the primary focus of, of that risk management. Um, and, and my concern has always been um, that we have to always remember that risk management, that when you're assessing your risks, it is, there are really three factors that go into it. Vulnerability is one of those, but threat is another. And I think too often neglected, but perhaps most important, is consequence or impact, right? And and so to the extent that the government uh, traditionally is focused at all on, on understanding the impact of the consequences as part of the risk assessment, it has been heavily weighted toward prioritizing large stores of data, right? So we have, as a country, so it's a government and non-government, um, really focused on confidentiality of data, uh, you know, when we think about cybersecurity. And, um, and, and we really need to think more broadly, right, about both 
about confidentiality, but also access to data and integrity of data. And, and I argue that in cybersecurity, our, our, our almost sole focus uh, traditionally on threat and vulnerability to the neglect of really understanding consequences for risk assessment and in mitigation um, presents a real challenge in ever being able to fully address uh, effectively cybersecurity. And I think it is, I think it is um, furthered by the FISMA process, the Federal Information Security Management Act, which is, imposes requirements on all departments and agencies. That is almost entirely an exercise for the IT staff. And again, it's mostly focused on vulnerabilities. Um, and so I think that has, a, while it's valuable, um, is an incomplete a way to do effective cyber risk management. We were starting to get at some of this when I left DHS in the wake of the OPM breach. We put out a call to all the departments and agencies and said, all right, we're gonna really try to focus on risk-based, uh, you know, cyber risk management here. Start by identifying your high value assets. And what we got back from departments and agencies, not surprising, were assets that were large data storage uh, uh, databases. Um, and again, they were thinking about the last breach, the OPM breach, where the issue was confidentiality of sensitive personal information. So we had to go back out to them and say, no, think more broadly about high value assets, including assets that where you are dependent on the integrity of that data and what would happen if that was disrupted and where you are dependent upon accessing, being able to access data to do your mission essential functions. Do right? they understand and, that? Um, that what we got back then was a more sophisticated yes. Um, I think once you sort of explain that to people, they broaden their thinking, they do begin to understand it. And that, you know, I think of integrity of data as being really the issue, uh, a large part of the issue with respect to industrial control systems, for example. You want to be able to trust the integrity of that communication between, for example, your your SCADA system and your, and your operational uh, uh, machinery. Um, so thinking about industrial control systems that the government owns and operates, as well as these broader categories of disruption. And I always tell them, start by thinking about your mission essential functions. Don't start by thinking about your IT networks. Start by thinking about your mission essential functions. Think of this the, the way you think about COOP. It's a continuity of operation issue. But there's a breakdown, at least I've found one in my career, between IT and we'll throw cybersecurity in there for a second, and the business or the mission of the agency in many cases. Some do it really well, but but in a lot of cases, and this is a commercial problem almost as much, the business and IT don't necessarily understand, they come in from different perspectives. And they, yeah. and they don't understand, to your point, the importance or the risk. Like what is mission critical? Right, and, you're, and I always say, look, I had brilliant... Um, IT experts on my team at DHS, some really smart, capable folks there. Um, but they don't always understand the, the impact of a network disruption on your ability to do your mission essential functions. Or if you're in business, they're not necessarily going to understand the impact any more than the electrician can tell you what the impact on your business is going to be if you lose power for a week or several days, right? You need to bring in your, your business operations people, your people who, who, your communications folks, you need to bring in the folks who understand what it takes to do your mission, if you're talking about the government, 
Um, and then they need to work collaboratively with the IT folks. But it starts with what are the disruptions from whatever cause that would prevent us from doing our mission essential functions? Now, IT staff, which of those could be caused by a cyber incident? And then when we take, go back to mitigation, how do we reduce that risk? It's not just IT solutions that you should be searching for, right? Think paper ballots. Think hand cranks. Think about doing your operations differently. Mm -hmm. Redundancy, resilience, right? And some of those are going to be non-technical solutions that your IT staff would never come up with. But your business folks, your operations would. folks would. Because they understand the business. Right. Well, and if... Go ahead, Eric. Well, I was going to say, Susan, do you feel as though in terms of aligning, you know, business with with IT, do you feel as though that is starting to happen? I mean, we I know we've seen efforts where we're trying to elevate, you know, the roles of CIOs, especially not both in um, government as well as in the private sector. So they're at the table for when these other business decisions are being made. Do you see the tide sort of turning and going in that direction more and more? And if so, you know, is that is, you know, is that is are the policies becoming more effective in terms of um, moving that way? Um, I think, yes, I do see us moving that way. Uh, you know, we, we're, we never um, move toward change as rapidly as, as we should or need right. to uh, with the sense of urgency that the threat requires, but I do see it starting to change. I think, again, I, you know, I talked with my colleagues, particularly my colleagues around the Department of Homeland Security, but also around government at senior meetings at the White House and elsewhere, um, to, to, to engage in the cybersecurity discussion despite not being technical experts, um, because they were experts in their mission, mm -hmm. and that they were responsible for understanding the degree to which their mission essential functions could be disrupted by cyber. And, um, and, I, and I do think that, that that engenders a dialogue between the IT staff and the policy folks and the operations folks, the mission folks, um, that is much more constructive and much more fruitful. And once they start thinking in those terms, then as they put in place new programs, new operations, right. they're much more likely to be thinking right from the outset Hmm. This is, you know, how could now how now how could these be disrupted, and what can we build in on the front end to make this new program or activity more resilient against cyber risk? Then you bring in your IT people at the beginning. Your CISO, love that. Your CISO is part of those conversations. Yeah. Too often we find security is not built in. It's an after, it's, it's an afterthought. It isn't built in from the beginning. Sometimes it's never built into. To, you know, at, at all through the life cycle, but it's rarely, rarely ever thought about or built in from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems I like it's more of a nine one one versus the four one one, right? Like, right. Bring so it, it'd be like build, <laughs> yeah. Imagine building a building and not having security cameras or a fence mm -hmm. around it or locks on the doors and windows, and either never doing that or saying eh, afterwards, okay, maybe we should put some locks in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And or. Uh, putting in those cameras and locks, uh, the most high tech that you can find, um, thinking that you've now, you know, secured your your uh, your building when you haven't considered that those very sophisticated high tech locks and cameras are connected to the Internet and could be disrupted through malicious mm -hmm. cyber activity. Right. Yeah. So we, we have long argued that CSOs and CIOs and CISOs all need to talk to each other much more frequently 
And again, that's another part of enterprise risk management. And Suzanne, I was reading a, um, a, a article that came out a couple of years ago. Um, it was put out by the Brookings Institute. And so it, it's going it, it essentially to write around on what you're saying. But um, basically, it's stated that cybersecurity risk management is bound to fail. And their theory there is that managers or the business part um, of either government or you know commercial, that they are incentive, they're incentivized to underinvest in security measures because, as you said earlier, the ROI isn't necessarily visible until, you know, your mission is, um, you know, uh, at stake or you can't, um, you know, deliver or, or, or certain types of programs um, no longer can operate because of some sort of cybersecurity breach or attack. And they are also talking about how the more you invest in cybersecurity, of course, the less than that the business, and I, p- I would put quotes around business, um, can't invest in other, um, you know, in, in other areas that they feel are probably more critical to, to business. So, and from what I'm hearing, this is the issue. This is, this continues to be the issue that we have to overcome. We're making progress, especially, you know, in, in government, but um, it's finding that balance. How do we make sure that the business is incentivized to recognize security as an important part from the beginning so that it's not bound to fail in terms of a risk management strategy. Right. I think that's right. And so a number of things come into play there to address the concerns that that the authors of that report and others have raised about this approach. So when they talk about that managers don't have much incentive to uh, invest in security measures, in part that's because they have traditionally not been held accountable for those failures, because we have relegated that, if you will, or consigned that to the IT staff. And, and, And so the business manager, the program manager is not held accountable. Whereas if you engage, if you make it the program manager's responsibility to understand how their program, their operational activity could be impacted uh, and disrupted by cyber, then it's much easier to hold them accountable if they haven't taken the steps and worked collaboratively with the ISDT staff to do something. So there are ways to make them more accountable that I think are not unfair. Um, they also talk about the, that, you know, one of the reasons is that it's very hard to um, know what the cost of that failure will be, right? And I actually, there I would push back a little bit. Uh, I think there is a lot we can know about the cost of disruption now. We don't have anywhere near the kind of data we have for, say, you know, natural disasters or fires or the kinds of things for which we have all kinds of actuarial data. But we are getting an increasing amount of data about the costs of disruption from things like NotPetya and WannaCry and, and other kinds of malicious cyber activity. And you can borrow from the data that you have about other disruptions to your operations that are caused by storms, fires, other kinds of activities for which there is much more data. So I think our ability, again, if we don't try to assign specific numbers to threat and vulnerability uh, in that so-called formula for risk assessment, um, I, I agree that trying to assign a number to, the, to evaluate the threat, to assess the threat, and, and even assigning a number to ever-increasing vulnerabilities is a huge challenge. But understanding the cost of the consequence of the impact, start with understanding what the impact will be. And then there are, there are ways to do a better job of assessing what that will cost. And, then, and there are also then ways of, of understanding whether you, how you have done at preventing that, right? So one of the other criticisms is uh, we have to, you know, 
if we do a good job, nothing happens. And how do we know, you know, what when the absence of something happening means we did a good job or that no one was attacking us? Well, in cyberspace, that's not that's not the case. You, if you have good audit logs, if you have good uh, perimeter, de- de- uh, you know, detection uh, devices and 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 a knowledge of what's going on and visibility in your network, you can tell whether you have per- blocked malicious activity. Um, you can you can catalog the malicious activity that you have detected more quickly as a result of the investments that you made, and because then you are able to articulate what the impact would would be of disruption, you can now begin to make a return on investment in a business case. Um, uh, so so I, it will always be a challenge to attempt to identify and attach precise dollar figures. But if we move the discussion from impact to IT networks to instead focus on impact to mission essential functions, that will help decision makers understand the risk in terms they can understand and do a, a better job of risk calculus. I, I agree with you, and I, I think this is an area where it just gets overlooked because we're all so busy. I mean, how many people actually go back and say, this is what we did this last month or this last quarter, this is what we prevented, and understand the potential gravity of what could have happened had they not had anything? Right. So it, so to go in and happen. say we detected you know, 10,000 uh, uh, attempted malicious attacks, uh, and most of them were junk, you know. Um, but, but that's not particularly meaningful, right? But, but we now, you ha- there is technology out there now, and it is not prohibitively expensive, that, that really would allow you to, uh, to be able to see uh, much more about the malicious activity that you have blocked or detected and compare that to alerts and bulletins that are out there, to threat intelligence information that is being shared on a much larger scale today, uh, and be able to uh, make a much clearer case to a board of directors or, in this case for government, to cabinet secretary or CIO um, or program managers, that this is what we think we have you know, been able to prevent in terms of impact to what you come into work every day to do, which is perform your mission. Agreed. And, and I think there's a regulatory component to it also. I mean, if you, we we're talking about weather impact. If you live near the coast in a hurricane zone, there are certain regulatory requirements, you know, building codes that you need to adhere to. Erica, last week we talked about seatbelts in the podcast. Right. <laughs> right? The, the, or two weeks ago with, with Dickie George. You know, imagine what cars would be like if you didn't have safety features. Mm-hmm. Houses, if they didn't have reinforced glass or special roofs in, in the hurricane zones. There is a basic minimum that we can regulate or should be regulating so that, you know, you don't need that seatbelt until you need it. But once, when you have an accident, you need the seatbelt, right? Same thing in cybersecurity. Technically, nobody needs cybersecurity until they're attacked. Unfortunately, everybody's attacked all the time. We do need basic level of security capability and agencies, businesses really vary in what they provide. And, and DHS has uh, been given this uh, really kind of extraordinary authority, binding operational directives to, to direct other departments and agencies about some of those basic things they have to do for cybersecurity. The first binding operational directive that we issued after Congress gave us that authority was uh, a requirement to implement patches within 30 days for critical vulnerabilities. 
Um, and it's it's such a basic step for cyber hygiene, but it was not being done. Uh, and the response was very good. And in fact, they've significantly shortened the time frame. I forget what it is now, um, but it's but it's much shorter than 30 days. Uh, but those binding operational directives have been effective. The most recent one that got a lot of attention, of course, was make sure you don't have Kaspersky products in your mm-hmm. systems. Suzanne, with with the FISMA reports being what they are, I mean, there are there are many agencies that are not. How would I put this? Where they where they'd want to be, or where the American people would want them to be. I, I know we're making some progress. What would your guidance be uh, to the departments and agencies, or to the American public? Uh, uh, I, I don't think, think the American public can do a whole lot. So <laughs> yeah. let's let's go to well, the department and agency level. Well, I will say, you know, uh, the departments and agencies respond to um, pressure like anybody else. Uh, Congress responds to constituents. So uh, I, you know, I think if the public was more engaged in this conversation, it could it could make a difference. But really, I think I I do think that um, one of the things that we have to be honest about is that we've got if we take this threat seriously, as we should. And members of Congress talk about the seriousness of the cybersecurity threat all the time. We've got to devote the resources, the level of resources, commensurate with this, the seriousness with which we approach this threat. But so, where are we? Where well, are we then? Yeah. I, again, I think I think this is not yet an issue that has strong public currency. I don't. Mm-hmm. You know, I think. Members of Congress feel enough pressure that they want to talk about it and maybe put in legislation. And um, but but in order to provide serious resources to DHS and to individual departments and agencies to really um, upgrade their systems from old legacy systems and and implement that have the resources uh, that they need, particularly staff resources to do the things we're asking them to do, would would mean uh, taking money. From other places, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 so Congress, you know, the authors of your report talked about how business managers have little incentive to invest in security uh, versus new programs and activities. Frankly, Congress is in the same boat. That's a good point. Um, it's it's harder to justify going home and saying, you know, I voted to put a lot more money into you know departments and agencies into the federal government to improve cybersecurity within the federal government versus, you know, I put money into some new program or activity that's going to impact our district. When does it change? Well, you know, people always say it will, will take a serious, significant cyber incident to bring about change. Well, we've had a number of serious, significant cyber incidents, uh, including the OPM breach. And I do think that each of them, uh, you know, brings about some, some steps forward, some measure of change. Uh, I think it's, I don't know what it's going to take uh, really to get the, the the level of seriousness and the sense of urgency um, that will result in a, in a real allocation of resources that matches our rhetoric. That seems to be a common theme we hear on the podcast. I was going to have to say the same right? thing. Yep. We need a catastrophic event. <laughs> unfortunate. We haven't yep. had one yet, but we need something significant enough mm-hmm to force the government to change. Well, and I think also to Suzanne's point to also have that public outcry that's also going to put that additional pressure on the government from a constituency um, standpoint to also, you know, force that change. Right, because if you look at the last couple of events, they've been pretty serious, pretty costly. But I don't don't think the people, I don't think the American public 
has really r- rallied behind any of them and said, we, we, we demand a change. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, I, I do think that bit by bit, this public education and awareness is, is, is beginning to have an impact. Uh, and I think we're seeing it mostly in the private sector where slowly, but surely, uh, you know, new products that are being delivered that have wonderful connectivity and the benefits of connecting to the internet um, are starting to talk about the ways in which they're going to protect your privacy, for mm-hmm. example. You're not talking um, IoT, are you? Yeah. <laughs> to, 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 internet yeah, of things? Exactly. Right, right. Like the, uh, the S in IoT stands for security. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I actually do think that they are they that 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 some of the more responsible developers of the Internet of Things are anticipating the 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 blowback uh, that that comes from uh, incidents that involve their equipment that that if it, if it's not you know adequately secured and protected, um, and I think it will help if we talk about it in terms that the public can understand. Talk mm-hmm. about it in terms of privacy. Talk about it in terms of reliability. Uh, everybody, I think, understands that if they're going to buy an uh, autonomous vehicle someday, they want to be confident that someone can't hack into it and and cause it to do something that the uh, occupant that puts the right. occupant in danger. Right. So you talk about cybersecurity. That is an abstract term that means very little to the to most people. Um, and I think we have to start talking about it using different words and, and talk about it in terms that people understand. That's absolutely right. And actually, we just on our last podcast had a long, lengthy discussion about autonomous cars and the security uh, you know, measures that will have to be in place for that trust to really um, you know, be there for the, for the public as, they start, as we start to move towards those new technologies. So. It sounds like we have we we've made progress, but we still have a ways ways to go. <laughs> we have a long way to go. <laughs> well, well thank- you guys are helping uh, with this broadcast. <laughs> We're trying to do our Raise part. Awareness. Yes, yeah, yeah. One one broadcast at a time. Yes, yes, yes. There yes. you go. Unfortunately, <laughs> about a quarter of them say we need a catastrophic event to move the needle. Well, I, which is I, not a good situation. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, as I say, I'm a little more optimistic. I think we are. Uh, making progress bit by bit. So, no, we definitely are. Yeah. Well, thank you, Suzanne, so much. I mean, your insight based upon, you know, your experience, your time in government and now your, your time away. It's certainly um, it, it's 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 very insightful. And we really appreciate your time today. We'd love to have you back in the future. I think we could probably <laughs> talk about a number of topics that, that we come across that we'd love to have you, your uh, your insight on. Happy to come anytime. Yeah, and thanks for what you've done for us as a country. Yes. Thank you. Yes. And thanks for what you guys are doing. Well, and thank you to all of our listeners that have tuned in every week. Please continue to subscribe to the podcast. Also, uh, feel free to rate us on uh, iTunes and to feel free to also send us a message and let us know um, what you want to hear us cover in terms of government cybersecurity or cybersecurity um, as a whole. So uh, until next week, thank you again and thank you for tuning in. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. 
And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store. 